If you have a Bible, you can meet me in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Olympic athletes are born with talent, but made through sacrifice. Okay, Olympic athletes are born with talent, but they are made through sacrifice. They get up at four in the morning, they endure grueling training, they eat clean. Why? Because they want the reward. Man, they want to walk into that stadium with their country's flag. They want to step up on the metal podium. Man, they endure great sacrifice. They endure great suffering for their reward. That's the only thing that explains what they do. The only way you can understand what an Olympic athlete does is when you look at it in light of the reward. Well, in our passage today, Jesus is going to tell us that following him costs something. It is not the easiest way to live. So if you're looking to maximize comfort and convenience, then following Jesus is not for you. And if you're a Christian here today, you need to know that. You need to know that it costs something to follow Jesus because if you're going to persevere to the end, you have to have accurate expectations. You have to know what it's going to be like to follow Jesus so that you're not caught off guard. But if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're sort of investigating Christianity, this is an important sermon for you because here's, here's what I can tell you with all sincerity. I am not trying to sell you something. I am not trying to sell you something because if I was, I wouldn't preach this passage. Okay, this is what pastors refer to as a seat clearing passage. Okay, because it's, it's just full of honest, hard truth. It is full of honest, hard truth about, hey, sometimes following Jesus feels a lot more like suffering than it feels like your best life now. That sometimes it's a lot more about sacrifice than every day of Friday. Like following Jesus costs something. And so when you come here, you know you're going to get from me what's in the scriptures, not just what I think you want to hear, so that you can understand for yourself, is this worth it? Do I believe Jesus is who he said he is, and is it worth following him? So this passage is full of hard, honest truth, but it also is full of life. You see, in this passage, Jesus is going to show us the path to true life. The life that you really long for, that I really long for, but we so rarely find. And Jesus is going to show us that these two things are connected. In a very counterintuitive way, the path to life is through death. The path to life is through death. Here's the big idea from the sermon today. If you were taking notes, you have to leave early. The cost of following Jesus is high, but the reward is higher. The cost of following Jesus is high, but the reward is higher. So I'm just going to walk through this text. I'm going to point out the cost, and then I'm going to point out the reward. And then, man, what should we do about it? Okay, look at verse 31. And he, Jesus, began to teach them. And he, Jesus, began to teach them. So to understand what's going on, we need a little bit of context. So if you back up to verse 28, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? What do you believe about my identity? And Peter responded, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that was a really big moment in Mark because it was the very first time that someone rightly understood that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Savior King that they had been waiting for. Okay, so that is really big. That just happened. But what we're going to learn in this section is that Peter had the right answer but the wrong concept. Okay, he was right that Jesus was the Christ, but his concept of what the Christ came to do was very flawed. It was very wrong. It was very culturally conditioned. And so to correct those misconceptions, Jesus is going to spend this entire passage teaching. This is Jesus the teacher in verses 31 through 38. You see, Jesus had a robust teaching ministry. He spent an enormous amount of time in his life instructing the mind, replacing false ideas with true ones. And Jesus did that because ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. What you believe will eventually determine how you live. If you think about it, The first mistake of humanity was not a wrong action, it was a wrong thought. You see, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve believed the lie that Satan told them. 
When Satan said, hey, God's holding out on you. If you follow your feelings, you will find true life. You see, he implanted a wrong thought, a wrong belief. Adam and Eve believed it, and then they acted. You see, if Satan wins the war in your mind, he's won. If Satan wins the war in your mind, he's won, which is why Jesus spent so much time teaching. It's why the Bible emphasizes again and again the importance of preaching, teaching, and instruction. It's why I spend about 40 minutes on Sunday preaching. It's why we gather in groups during the week to study the Bible. It's why we equip you to have your own time with God while you're studying the scriptures, because we need our minds to be renewed and transformed by the truth of God's word. How you think, how I think will determine how we live. And here's the bad news. We are far more shaped by our culture than we realize. We are far more shaped by our culture than we realize. Every day, we are programmed by the world we live in. Man, through our phones, our tablets, our streaming services, and our music, we are discipled in the ways of individualism, materialism, and secularism. Billions of dollars are spent every single day to convince you to chant the slogans of the empire and to be conformed to this world. That is the honest, hard, bad news. If you don't do anything, you will be a disciple of 21st century modern America. If you do nothing, you will be swept down the river of secularism and individualism and materialism. That, that's what will happen. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Jesus offers to be your teacher. Jesus offers to be my teacher. He offers to shape you and to instruct you and to disciple you in truth. Man, what incredible privilege. I mean, people pay good money for corporate coaches, right? I mean, athletes will pay millions of dollars for elite trainers because we all understand what an honor and privilege it is to be instructed by a master teacher. I mean, how would you feel if you got a phone call and it was Warren Buffett? And he was like, hey man, thought I'd be your financial advisor. You'd be like, let me think about it. You know, like, or, uh, or, or what if Elon Musk said, hey, I wanna coach you in your small business, right? Or, or your favorite Christian leader or pastor or writer emailed you and said, man, I've got an opening in my schedule. I would really like to mentor you. Right? You would be really, really excited. You would know what an incredible privilege that is. Well, here's the good news. We have the opportunity to be instructed by the teacher of teachers. Man, to be discipled by the embodiment of God's wisdom, the greatest teacher who has ever lived, Jesus Christ. The word disciple literally means learner. So when you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, you become a learner of Jesus Christ. And a major part of maturity is having your mind transformed by God's truth. So Jesus was teaching his disciples. So what was he teaching them about? He says this, that the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So this is the first place in this text that we see the high cost of following Jesus. Jesus is going to teach us four things that will happen to him, and if they happen to him, it is likely that a version of them will happen to his followers. First, Jesus said he must suffer many things. He must suffer many things. It was the necessary work of the Messiah to suffer. We see that all throughout the Old Testament, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53. Jesus suffered physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. One of his titles was suffering servant. And another of his titles was man of sorrows. And Jesus suffered for two main reasons. Two main reasons that Jesus suffered. The first reason was to pay for the sins of the world. You see, on the cross, Jesus suffered to pay the penalty of our sins. 
And he finished that work entirely. He has suffered entirely for the debt that you owed. So here's the good news. If you are in Christ, you do not need to punish yourself for your sins. That is for someone here today. You no longer need to punish yourself for your sins. Jesus was already punished for you. He's finished that work. He turned the cup of God's wrath over. He said, Tetelestai, it is finished. Good news. So you do not need to follow in his footsteps in that way. But the second reason that Jesus suffered was because he came to seek and to save the lost. Have you ever thought about how when you have the ability to, you avoid suffering? Right? I do. Like when I have the power to avoid suffering, I see it coming. I do. But think about this. Jesus was in heaven insulated from suffering. And yet he used his power to enter into suffering. He used his power to leave heaven, to take on flesh, and to step into our broken world and to step into the path of suffering. Why? To seek and to save the lost. It was the only way that you could be saved. It was the only way that I could be saved. Jesus endured suffering to seek and to save the lost. And as disciples, we're called to do the same thing. As his disciples, we are called to lay down our lives for the sake of reaching others. In some places around the world and throughout history, that's meant literally laying down your life. That's meant literally risking your life so that your family members or friends or coworkers could hear the gospel. But that's not the case for us. That's not the case for us right now and where we live. So what does this look like for us? Well, it might look like planting a new missional community so that new people can hear about Christ and get connected to the church. And do you know what that's going to require? That's going to require relational sacrifice. Because here's what I know about me and here's what I know about you. We like to make our group of friends and then say in our group of friends. But do you know what happens if we all do that? No one else gets to have a group of friends. Aren't you glad that when you came here, there was a group of friends for you? So it might look like, man, you laying down your relational comfort, you laying down your relational preferences, you sacrificing so that other people can get connected to community. It might look like sacrificing comfort, social comfort, to share the gospel with one of your coworkers. And you lean into that awkward space, and you're not sure what's going to happen, and maybe it's awkward, maybe it doesn't go well, but maybe it does. But you say, man, your, your soul is worth it, the glory of God is worth it, I'm going to sacrifice comfort so that you can hear the gospel. It might look like using vacation time to go on a mission trip. To say, hey, I get 10 days of vacation. I'm going to use five of them to go to New York City and to share the gospel with Sikhs and Muslims living in Queens who've never heard the name of Jesus. Or I'm going to use 10 of them to go to central India to go minister alongside of members of our church that are living there full time. It might look like sacrificing your vacation for the sake of mission. It might look like your standard of living being impacted by your standard of giving. And you saying, you know what, I can't get that new car that I want, or we can't do that house project, or we can't live in that neighborhood, or go on this kind of vacation, because we give in such a way that it, are, it impacts our standard of living. I don't live in the same way that my peers do, because I give in a way that's different than my peers do. You see, here's what I find in my own life, and in a lot of people's life, we love to talk about reaching people, we don't like to actually reach them. Because talking about reaching people is exciting, and talking about reaching people makes us feel righteous. And talking about reaching people can go on a video and you're like, I want to be a part of a church that likes to reach people. And it's like, that's great. Are you willing to suffer to do it? Are you willing to sacrifice to reach people? I think about the group of people that moved up here to plant Center Church. You know, it was exciting for me to talk about planting a church and then they had to sell their house. And then they had to uproot their kids from their schools. And then they had to try to find a new house. And it cost like a million dollars to buy a townhouse in Charlottesville. And like there was sacrifice and there was suffering, but they did it for the sake of reaching people. It has always been the sake that the mission of the church goes forward through the blood of the saints. That was true in the first century, literally, and that's true today as we sacrifice our comfort and we sacrifice our convenience for the sake of other people. One of the main reasons that churches get off mission and become insular is that they stop being willing to sacrifice. 
One of the main reasons churches get off mission and become insular is because they're just saying, it's, it's too hard. I don't want to do it anymore. So a question to consider today is, where do you need to sacrifice to reach someone? Where do you need to sacrifice to reach someone? Second, Jesus was rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. That triumvirate represented the cultural elites of that day. So to modernize it a bit, this would be, uh, you know, the, the social media influencers, the professional athletes, the musicians, the talk show hosts, the VPs at your company. Man, these were the people that were shaping popular opinion. These were the people who were deciding what side of history was the right side of history to be on. And Jesus was not accepted by them. Jesus was not accepted by mainstream culture. Jesus was not celebrated by the people who were in power. Instead, he was slandered, he was criticized, and he was labeled an extremist. When we follow Jesus, we must prepare to be marginalized for our convictions. You must be ready to lay down your GPA and your career path before you lay down your convictions. Now, you shouldn't be obnoxious. You shouldn't invite rejection and invite persecution because you're obnoxious. But we just need to understand that even if you are gracious and kind and winsome, if Jesus Christ was rejected, the more you become like Jesus Christ, the more likely it is that you will be rejected. Number three, third, Jesus would be killed. Notice it doesn't say we'll die, but we will be killed. We often forget this because we talk so much about the cross of Christ. But Jesus was, in one sense, the victim of a violent murder at the hands of an unjust government. Now, I I am a, a big proponent of religious liberty. I think it's one of God's graces in our country. But we need to recognize that for the vast majority of disciples throughout history and around the world today, they live under unjust governments who persecute them for their faith. And we just can't be surprised if that increasingly happens in our context. If that happened to Jesus, if that happened to all of his earliest followers, we shouldn't be surprised if that increasingly happens to us. Okay, this is a heavy passage, right? And it is going to get more hopeful, I promise. But I think we need to wrestle with what it means to follow Jesus. I think we need to have accurate expectations if we're going to persevere until the end. It reminds me of a leadership principle called the Stockdale Paradox. The Stockdale Paradox. So Jim Stockdale was the highest ranking U.S. military officer to be held in the Hanoi Hilton POW camp during the Vietnam War. And while he was in prison, he was tortured more than 20 times over eight years. And yet amazingly, Admiral Stockdale not only survived, but afterwards he looked back and considered it a defining moment of his life. And he actually went on to build an incredible life and an incredible, and to be an incredible influencer. And when asked, how did you persevere? This is what he said. I confronted the most brutal facts of my situation while also maintaining unwavering faith that I would prevail in the end. I confronted the most brutal facts of my situation while also maintaining unwavering faith that I would prevail in the end. Disciples of Jesus need to embrace the Stockdale Paradox. Man, we need to confront the brutal facts of the situation. Man, that that we have an enemy, and he's supernatural, and he's intelligent, and he hates you. And then we have our flesh, which is always warring against us and wanting to do sinful things rather than spirit things. And then we have the world that is trying to deceive us and lead us astray and get us to care about and love all these other things. And then you just have the hardships of life. And then you just have how long it is that you have to follow Jesus. Then it is a long, hard road to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We need to confront the most brutal facts of our situation. You need to do that for your kids. You need to just go to the Lord and settle the fact that if your kids follow Jesus, their life will be less comfortable, will be less convenient, and from a worldly perspective, will probably be less successful. It's just true. 
Like following Jesus did not mean worldly success for his earliest disciples. We have to confront the brutal facts while maintaining unwavering faith that in the end we will prevail. Now, where do you get that kind of faith? I don't know where Admiral Stockdale got it, but we get it from the fourth thing that Jesus said. Fourth, I will rise again. Jesus was killed, but he rose again. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, his life was a tragedy. But because Jesus did rise from the dead, his life is a triumph. And because Jesus rose from the dead and went ahead of us to prepare a place in heaven, then no matter what happens in your life, no matter what happens in your children's lives, if you and if they are followers of Jesus Christ, then you will ultimately prevail. And one day you will go to be with your father in paradise. And that is where the unwavering faith comes from in the life of a disciple. Friends, the cost of following Jesus is high, but the reward is higher. And Jesus taught his disciples this plainly. He didn't use any metaphors. He didn't use any parables. He was very straight up with them. So how did the students respond? Here we go. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I doubt this is your life verse. You know, I just love the time when Jesus gets rebuked by Peter, you know. It's not like on your coffee mug, right? I mean, you don't have to be like, you don't have to have a PhD to know it's a bad idea to rebuke Jesus, right? Like that's a bad call. Uh, I think that's pretty obvious. So, so why did Peter do it? Like why did Peter rebuke Jesus? Because a suffering Messiah was unthinkable to him. A suffering Messiah was unthinkable to him. The Messiah was a symbol of strength, not of weakness. The Messiah was this incredible figure, this conqueror who was going to break into the history of the world and smash God's enemies into oblivion. So what Jesus said was radically countercultural. I mean, it violated and confronted some of the most deeply held cultural beliefs that Peter had in his life. And any time the Bible confronts our cultural values, we are tempted to rebuke it, just like Peter did. Anytime the Bible starts getting into our business, we're tempted to rebuke it just like Peter did. There are entire seminaries, denominations, and churches who've done this. They've decided that God's word needs to be corrected, that Jesus needs some editing on his paper, that he needs to be rebuked. But it's not just people out there who struggle with this. I mean, it's every single one of us. Every time that we read the scriptures and it pushes up against and it grinds against one of our deeply held cultural values, values about our sexuality, about materialism, about individualism, right? When the Bible presses up against those things, man, we are tempted to rebuke it just like Peter did. Peter thought that Jesus needed correcting and sometimes we think that same thing. Here's how Jesus responded, verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, so all of them, Jesus rebuked Peter. And said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter rebuked Jesus, then Jesus rebuked Peter, you know, returned the favor. But before he did, Jesus turned and looked at all of the disciples. And, and what he was doing is saying, this is for all of you, okay? This is not just for Peter, this is for all of you, and by implication, this is for us today. Jesus said, Peter, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Man, how easy is that? How easy is that to do in our lives? How many of our dreams are more worldly than godly? Right? This, was, this was absolutely me in high school. Personal confession. I used to pray and ask God to let me score touchdowns. And here was my reasoning. God, if I score a touchdown, I will pray afterwards. This is a win-win, God. I score touchdowns, you get prayer. Right? Like, in that moment, was I really seeking the Lord's face in the end zone? You know, was I asking him to, like, move in power on my team and glorify himself in my school? No. 
That moment was much more about my glory than it was about God's glory. All I did was I took my American dream and I baptized it. And that is a massive danger in our lives today. It is very, very easy for us to take our American dreams and baptize them. So let me just ask you a little personally, do your dreams about the future have to do with you being godlier? With you being more sanctified? With you being a a, a better spouse? With you being a more set-apart worker? Or do you dream about big bank accounts and, and forever homes and granite countertops and exotic vacations? Do you dream about, man, that next promotion? Do you dream about that next cool city that you can live in? Do you dream about that second house that you want to buy? Do you dream about all that travel you want to be able to do? Do you dream about that private school you want to put your kids in? Do you dream about that wardrobe that you want to have? Right? None of those things are bad in and of themselves. But if your primary vision of the future is all about the world, then you need to be recalibrated. If your primary vision of the future has to do with your glory instead of God's glory, then you've taken the American dream and you've baptized it. And Jesus is not going to follow up on your baptized American dream. Instead, he's going to say, you're setting your mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. But why did Jesus call him Satan? Okay, that's, that's pretty harsh, right? Like that is a bad day to get called Satan by Jesus. So why did he call him Satan? Well, because Peter was seeking to dissuade Jesus from fulfilling his messianic calling. He did not want Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. So be thankful that Jesus rebuked him and called him Satan, (laughs) which is the exact same thing that Satan tried to convince Jesus to do in the wilderness in Luke chapter four. You see, guys, satanic influence is very rarely the kind of thing that we see in horror movies. Satanic influence is much more often the smooth, subtle voice in your mind that says, you deserve this, it's been a long week, you're the exception. And consider that in this instance, Satan worked through one of Jesus' closest friends to tempt Jesus. Maybe you have that friend that you need to stop taking advice from. That friend that says, like, this is too serious. You don't need to obey all of the Bible. Like, you don't need to be that involved in the church. Like, it's, it's not a big deal. Like, you can pick and choose. Man, Satan tried to tempt Jesus by working through Peter, and oftentimes he does that in our lives as well. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. Okay, so notice Jesus calls everyone in close, okay? So this is no longer just for the apostles, like the special Green Beret Christians. This is for everybody. This is for us today, anyone who is a follower of Christ. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's, We'll save it. So here's a summary of what Jesus is saying it means to follow him. Deny yourself, take up your cross, take up your instrument of execution, and follow me. Die to your desires. Die to your comfort, to your control, to your dreams, and your self-sufficiency. Lay down your own interests for the sake of the interests of others. Lay down your glory and seek God's glory. Jesus' statement could not have been more all-encompassing. Deny, die, follow. And if you are going to be a follower of Jesus, that must become the banner that hangs over every area of your life. Marriage, deny, die, follow. Parenting, deny, die, follow. Your church involvement, deny, die, follow. Your finances, deny, die, follow. Work, 
Deny, die, follow. Education, deny, die, follow. Every single area of your life falls under this banner if you are a follower of Jesus. It is not about you. Clear enough? This is what Jesus is saying. It is not about you. Everything about you needs to die. And then you follow me. And everything about us hates that. Everything about us hates that because in our flesh, we love ourselves. Self-care is the buzzword of our generation. I don't, Jesus does not have a category for like, like I need to like just have some me time where like I just pamper myself and do all these things about me. It's like, all right, like resting is one thing. Self-care is not a biblical virtue. Self-denial is a biblical virtue. Sabbath is a biblical virtue, but some sort of environment where it's all about me and I'm just going to bless and serve and care of myself is just not in the scriptures. So why would you do something that's so costly? Why would I do something that is so countercultural and that is so hard to do and that involves so much sacrifice? Because in the end, it is the only way to find true life. In the end, it is the only way to find true life. The path to life is through In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said something very important. He said, I came that you may have life and life abundant. That is what Jesus is after in your life. That's why he came. He came so that you might have abundant life. But guys, abundant life is different than an easy life. Jesus wants an abundant life for you, but that is different than an easy and convenient life. And here's the thing. The path to an abundant life isn't what you think. It isn't what I think. You see, our culture, our culture says that abundant life is found in self. Self-expression, self-promotion, self-affirmation, and self-love. But here's my question. Has that worked? Has that worked? Has your self-centered life produced the abiding joy and contentment that you long for? I, mean, I think it's a question at the end of the day. Has it worked? I got an email from a woman in our church this week asking me to pray for her coworker because her coworker came to her maybe last week, and said, hey, I've been pursuing school and work and relationships, and it's left me empty. And I know you're a Christian, and I'm wondering if maybe Jesus is what I need. It's a testimony. Someone who's not a believer yet, but is saying, look, I'm I'm doing the self-centered life thing. I'm doing what all the social media influencers are telling me, and it's not doing it. Can't we all relate to that? I mean, haven't haven't we all pursued a self-centered life and found it wanting, found it empty? Uh, pastoral confession here. I love the movie, The Pirates of the Caribbean, okay? So let that be as it may. And, uh, and we watch it like every Memorial Day to kind of like get ready for the summer. And there's this scene in Pirates of the Caribbean uh, that has always gripped me. It's when um, Captain Barbosa, who's kind of like the chief antagonist, he's the bad pirate captain, um, is, is describing the effect that the, the Mayan curse has had on him. And this is what he said. He said, we found the curse gold, we took it and we spent it. He said, we frittered it all away on drink and food and pleasurable company. But the more we gave away, the more we came to realize that drink would not satisfy. Food turned to ash in our mouths and all the pleasurable company in the world would not slack our lust. We are cursed men. We were compelled by greed, but now we're consumed by it. And I thought that was a pretty good illustration of the self-centered life. Man, when you try to gain your joy and contentment, In this world, it never works. Life is like sand that trickles through your fingers, and the tighter you squeeze, the faster it flows. Beyond that, self-centered, like a self-centered life is too small for your soul. 
It's just too small for your soul. You, you want to make a difference in the world. You want to do something that matters. You want a legacy, don't you? Well, if you live your entire life for yourself, then when you die, it's all over. That's it. If you live a life all about you, that when you die, it's all over, just by definition. But if you invest your life, if you lay down your life, if you sacrifice your life for God's glory and for the good of others, then when you die, your legacy lives on. It lives on in the men that you've discipled. It lives on in the women that you have led to Christ. It lives on in the churches that you helped plant through your generosity. It lives on through the way that you serve your community. It lives on in the way that you raised your children, the wisdom and instruction of the Lord. You see, a self-centered life ends at death. Whereas when we fix our eyes on Christ and his glory and on loving and serving others, then man, we have a legacy that goes beyond the grave. Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Here's the counterintuitive truth that teacher Jesus is giving us. When you go straight at happiness, you won't find it. When you go straight at happiness, you won't find it. But if you deny yourself, if you die and you follow Jesus, then you'll end up with the abundant life as a byproduct. You don't achieve the abundant life by seeking it. You receive the abundant life by seeking him. That is what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. And he illustrates this principle in verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? I mean, that's a simple but very shrewd question, isn't it? I mean, what good is it to gain everything you've ever wanted in this world, but then lose your soul? Your soul is eternal. Everything in this world is temporary. So why choose temporary things over eternal things? It's a terrible investment. It doesn't make sense, and yet we often do it. We often do it. And we see an illustration of it in Matthew 19. You see, in Matthew 19, Jesus interacted with a man called the rich young ruler. And this man had everything that we long for. I mean, he was young, he was rich, and he was powerful. Young, rich, and powerful. And he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's asking a good question. How do I get into heaven? And after some back and forth about obeying the Ten Commandments, Jesus said, Go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and come, follow me. Translation, deny, die, follow. That's how you will find eternal life. But upon hearing this, it says that the man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. So he chose six figures in a Lexus over eternal life. Man, climbing the corporate ladder over following the Messiah. He had an opportunity to walk alongside divinity on earth. And he said no because he had a big flock of sheep he really liked. And he had some robes he didn't want to give away. And he had a farmhouse that he was really taken with. You see, from the perspective of eternity, this man was not the rich young ruler, he was the rich young fool. And we look back at the things that he held on to instead of following Jesus, and we laugh, and yet what will a generation after us say about us? You didn't follow Jesus because you wanted to live in a bigger house? You didn't follow Jesus because you wanted to get promoted one more time at work. You didn't follow Jesus because you didn't want to be marginalized by some of your friends. And they're going to look at us and say, you're not the, you're not the rich young ruler, you're the rich young fool. And you traded in what is eternal for what is temporary, just like this man did in Matthew 19. How often are we so focused on the cash and prizes of this world that we neglect the eternal worthiness of Christ? Jesus isn't against investment. He's against bad investment. 
He's against you making unwise decisions. He's against you wasting your life on trinkets. If you want real life, here's what Jesus is saying. If you want real life, if you want eternal life, a life of kingdom significance, then deny, die, and follow. The path to life is through death. The cost of following Jesus is high, but the reward is higher. And Jesus closes in verse 38 with a warning. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So in this verse, Jesus talks about his second coming. Jesus' first coming was the incarnation. We celebrate that at Christmas, right? The, the baby in the manger at Bethlehem. But what we find in verse 38 is that Jesus' second coming is going to be very, very different than his first coming. You see, he came on a donkey. He's coming back on a war horse. He came in meekness. He's coming back in power. He came in humility. He's coming again in glory. He came to save. He's coming again to judge. He came as a lamb, but he's coming back as a lion. Friends, King Jesus is coming and will have the last word. This is what it means for him to be the Christ. And if you are going to follow him, you need to hear that. And you need to know that, and you need to keep that central in your minds. Because friends, following Jesus is hard. It calls you to die. It calls you to suffer. It calls you to sacrifice. But friends, the reward is so much higher. The day when King Jesus comes with his holy angels, you will be bowed before him in joy and you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And in that moment, you're not gonna look back and regret anything that you gave up or sacrificed for him. You're gonna look back and say, why didn't I sacrifice more? Why didn't I invest more of my life in what really mattered? King Jesus is coming again and we'll have the last word. Beyond that, if we need more motivation to deny, die, and follow, man, we have it in the gospel. Think with me about the gospel. Jesus Christ, the master teacher, the embodiment of wisdom, the alpha and omega, the overcoming Messiah gave up his life for you. He traded places with you on the cross. He atoned for your sin so that through repentance and faith, your sins could be removed from you as far as the east is from the west. You could have your shame removed. You could have your identity changed. And God the Father could look at you and say, daughter, son, welcome into my presence. You see, before Jesus asks you to lay down your life for him, he laid down his life for you. Now in response, we deny, die, and follow. Jim Elliott, the great American missionary who was killed by the Ecuadorian tribesmen that he was trying to reach, wrote this, as, wrote this in his journal. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. Would you bow your heads with me? In this moment, I just want to ask you, where do you need to deny, die, and follow? Maybe you need to do that for the first time. And today you need to become a Christian. You need to give up control of your life. You need to surrender to Christ and say, you are now the Lord. Or maybe there's a particular area that right now the Holy Spirit is touching on. Maybe it's an area that's never been surrendered to him. Or it's an area that needs to be re-surrendered to him. I just want to encourage you to give that up to him today. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose.